This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. See the side art, feel the controls, and hear Bananarama on the stereo. So where can you find that retro experience in the Chicago area? I heard a rumor you can find it at the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And you're listening to No Quarter, the classic video arcade game podcast. How are you, Mike? I'm doing all right. And you, Carrington? I'm excellent. I dragged out the you because I wasn't really sure where I was going with that sentence. You, you couldn't figure out how to wrap up asking someone how they are? <laughs> I'm not really very social. Sparkling conversationalist. <laughs> I'm in a very good mood because we've been playing a very interesting and different game this week. And it's been tons of fun to play. That's awesome. I really like this one. Mm-hmm. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't whine and complain about every title that we talk about. Just most of them. But first... First. We have feedback. Mm, we got feedback. We got news. We got a neat link sent to us. Actually sent a couple of weeks ago, and I forgot to mention it. Uh, Egan had written in to send us a link about an L.A. suburb that has been forced to sell its $100,000 arcade game collection. The city of Glendale. I remember mm-hmm. reading that article... I don't remember why they had to sell it, but it just made me really, really, really wish that I hadn't moved out of Southern California. Because you would have bought it. You would have laid down that $100,000. I would have, yes. Well, I probably would have laid down about 50 or 100 bucks and said, give me anyway. <laughs> I don't think you would have gotten it. But yes, so the suburb is selling its, its assets, include, including that, which is a shame, and I'm not getting any of it. So we also have news that uh, might not be news, but we're not sure. So we had a contest a while ago where we, and we've had a couple of contests. And one of them, an early one, was we gave away a little mini arcade cabinet. So the winner got to pick whatever cabinet they want. And we were getting Retro Heart, who's out in the UK, I think. So I think our first contest, we gave away a something else. And then they chose a Pac-Man blanket. And we know that arrived because we got photos of it. Mm-hmm. And then the next contest was done by our sponsor. And, and I don't know if he's got it yet, but the, the giveaway of the Blu-ray. And so that one seems to be in safe hands. And there was a, the Atari book. That we gave oh, Atari one. book. And then that one arrived. So the only thing, unfortunately, it seems that this one, the little mini arcade cabinet, I think, they, what did he choose? I think the Tron cabinet. Yeah, maybe? he wanted the Tron mini cabinet. Anyway, Retro Heart makes, custom makes these little cabinets. It's never arrived, and unfortunately for quite a long time now, uh, RetroHeart has been unresponsive to us saying, hey, uh, we paid for it, is it ever going to get shipped? And now, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of notes on the internet of other people saying that Stephen RetroHeart is just taking money and not actually shipping anything. There is a note over on RetroThing.com and on RetroGamer, people sort of discussing this and saying, hey, what's up? Is this a scam? Is What's going on? And then Stephen Gauntley, who's, who is RetroHeart, responded a couple months ago to say he got in a bad way and just, you know, he's sorry, sorry, he didn't mean to scam everybody. He's going to try to make amends. He's going to try to get things going. But then he's disappeared again. Everyone's like, well, that all sounded good, but it's been another few months and where's my money or my cabinet? So we just thought we should bring this up because 
we just want to make sure since we had promoted it to our, our listeners and say, hey, this sounds really cool. And we selected it to give it away as a contest offering. We want to make sure that people are a little cautious before they take our word on anything, including sending money to people <laughs> because uh, who knows what's going to come of this. So if we can't track the guy down, we'll figure out some way to Mike will personally make a little mini Mike will buy a full size Tron arcade cabinet and personally deliver it. That's going to be our response, right? Yeah, yeah, and in fact, he should go out and wait in his, his driveway for that right now. And it's going to be like a, a mechanical Turk thing. So rather than, because uh, it's sometimes hard to keep old games working. So instead, Mike will just be inside this, and he will make blip, bloop noises. And I'll act the whole thing out in, in sock puppet, right under the Sock the puppets are perfect. Little sock puppet, little Tron sock puppets. Yes. I am now spiders. <laughs> I have my light cycles. You know, that actually pew, sounds kind of awesome, and I want you to do it. <laughs> That's hilarious. So what else have we got? We got lots of feedback this week because we did Halloween stuff. We got, oh, also let's, let's stay with Egan. Let's make this the Egan feedback period. Okay. He wrote us a few other things, including a link to a quote, killer splatterhouse cabinet for Halloween. A, a fellow built a custom cabinet for splatterhouse. It started life as a defender cabinet. So it's kind of sad that one of those has essentially been destroyed, but Hopefully, it was a cabinet that was already mostly destroyed. That's why it got selected. And the results for this custom Splatterhouse cabinet are totally sweet. It's an amazing build and something quite different than what you normally see in cabinets and really suitable both to the Halloween theme and to the Splatterhouse game. Like, for instance, the buttons on the control panel are eyeballs staring up at you. (laughs) And the uh, joystick is a 3D printed thing in the shape of a bone. And it's got these these LED lights built into it and really cool textures. It's, It's a really great example of somebody going all out and building something truly custom. So over it's on hackaday.com. And so we'll make sure a link to that is in the show notes too, because it is totally sweet. Egan also wrote in to send us a nice happy anniversary note because we had passed episode 52 a while back and he urged slash chastised me to uh, take a moment to correct errors on Wikipedia when I see them if I have a source to back them up because I had complained, I think last show, that Wikipedia is unreliable and I do not trust it. He's like, well, you know, <laughs> you could contribute, but he's overestimating my uh, my desire to be helpful. <laughs> he's underestimating my, my laziness. <laughs> Well, thank you, Egan. Um, thank you for the wishes for one year mm-hmm. and also for putting Carrington in his place. Classy Freddy Blassie wrote in and said, uh, Mike, I uploaded this video just for you. I'm banning you to an arcade realm where the only games that exist are Congo Bongo and Scramble. A, a YouTube video, and we'll have a link for this, that includes rare production work for the classic video game Congo Bongo found at the Dixon, California pinball event. Very interesting stuff. I replied to Freddy, uh, good call, but if you're going to ban me, um, you need to make sure that it also includes elevator action if you really want to torment me. I love elevator action. You're wrong. Yeah, whatever. You're wrong. People lately have been writing in mostly to say that you're right about things, but I am going to stick with my stance that you are wrong about Not elevator everybody's action. everybody's written in to say, say that they agree with me, and we'll get to that no, in but just a minute. The, the fact that anybody has is, you know, shocking to me. <laughs> It really stands out. Lim posted on Facebook a photo of Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures. Well, a toy for Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures. And if I can, because photos on Facebook are difficult to link to, if I can get a link to it, I will link. And I think it's worth seeing because it's this Pac-Man toy. 
it says on the on the box that it has surprise pack action, and you might be wondering what that is, but it's got this huge tongue that rolls out, <laughs> which I guess would be a surprise. And uh, he asked if Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures was something we had talked about, and I think we did talk about it back when we did Pac-Man, one of our earliest shows, if not the first one. And I'm pretty sure we didn't have show notes back then. So that's why maybe it's difficult to find out. It's packisback.com is the, the site for that that TV show. So I'll I, make I sure the link's there now. must have been clairvoyant or something because Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures didn't actually air until June 15th, 2013. And we didn't we? way back in October of 2012. I'm sure we talked about it, though. Did we, we talked not about talk the about original Pac-Man animated series on Saturday morning cartoons, which is different than Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures. But I had this packisback.com link in my old show notes link. So I think it's just something that didn't make the, oh, maybe we, you know what? I think we just set trends. So that's what I think. They listen to us and, and say, oh, well, we should make those. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures is definitely a uh, brand new series. I, I don't know how we would reference it unless there were rumors floating around on the websites that we frequent saying this uh, this animated series is coming or, or something. I don't know. I think it's a time zone thing. I don't understand those clearly. So our time zone sometimes multiple months long. I wouldn't know. Maybe it premiered in Pacific time and you could convince me that that's like next April. So our last game last week when we talked about it was Ghosts and Goblins. I'm still bothered by the missing second apostrophe <laughs> there. And Olivier wrote in something that made me laugh. He said, I became a duck last night because we were writing about how do you become a duck. And he writes, the chest that shows up sometimes, if you crack it, a wizard will throw a spell on you. Most of the time, you're transformed into an old fart. <laughs> but yesterday, I was transformed into a duck. I didn't try to become a frog, though. And he writes, I was too surprised and I'm already a frog anyway. <laughs> Oh <laughs> Which made me laugh because, you know, French. Right, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very funny. I found the chest in, in Ghouls and Ghosts, but I never saw it in Ghosts and Goblins. And again, I didn't get that far in the game, so it doesn't right. surprise me. We were talking about Ghosts and Goblins not being, like, being too difficult last week. But, you mm-hmm. know, I spent a bunch of time this week still playing it. So it stuck with me. It's a, it's a hard game, and it doesn't seem to be super popular with our with our audience from some of the feedback we got. But I got to say, I'm still digging it. I'm still trying to get farther into the game. I, I, in fact, had forgotten we played it until you mentioned it tonight. <laughs> okay. Lim also asked two questions. Number one, what is the best game controller for Mac to be used for emulation? And number two, what is the simplest way to set up MAME for Mac? Something that just installs and uses, hopefully with the front end? Now, what I use on my main MAME machine which I had to slow down to say, <laughs> is a PC. So I use a Windows PC for that. It might as well be a DOS box, frankly, but I use a, a Windows PC for that. But I do have, like, my primary computer for use is a MacBook Pro, and I do have MAME installed on that as well, like on the computer I'm recording this on right now. I'm using MAME 64, but I use it through the terminal. So there's no front end at all. It launches into terminal and I'm using it with keyboard and, and DOS and such. It does work with any USB controller that you plug in. And for the most part, MAME is kind of just set up to use controllers quite easily. And it's very easy to set up any controller that can emulate keyboard presses and say, you know, up is just up arrow, etc. It's very easy to set up in MAME. So I think you can pick any USB controller, whatever's comfortable in your hand is going to work if you want to use a handheld one. I use an Xbox controller that's plugged into my Mac. That's what I use. 
really, I mean, I'm a big proponent of just building it yourself. You don't have to go to the crazy extremes that like Quinn Dunkey did with her awesome one we talked about a few weeks ago, but just getting a, getting an iPack, getting a JPack, hooking up to a couple of buttons. Like if you want to do something basic and ugly, it's really easy to accomplish. I do push for that because it's such a different experience to use a proper joystick and proper arcade buttons for these games. Like that's a big part of the appeal, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But when you're sitting in a waiting area in an airport or something like that, it's nice to be able to just whip out the laptop and play Donkey Kong. Mm -hmm. I agree. There's a couple of just basic USB plug-in controllers. I've used them a number of times and you just use their setup to say, just be key presses and then it'll work with MAME quite easily. So we got email from Paul writing in to say he's behind in listening. So he missed the contest. Ah, too bad, Paul. And, but he, he missed the question about one-handed games. And I like that he's uh, written in with a couple of other suggestions. So he says, I see there's already a list, which I should point out in the show notes. Um, I, I posted the list of games suggested so far, and I'll add these back to those show notes. So he recommends uh, Red Baron and Gorf. I thought we already had Gorf. If not, then good call. He says both games are excellent and should be reviewed on future episodes. He is right about that. And he also wrote in a suggestion for an April Fool's prank, but it's so good. I don't think we should subscribe it here so that we give us the possibility of actually trying to pull it off sometime because it was a very good idea. You are a sinister and sneaky fellow, Paul, and I like it. So uh, GameBits, who we both know in real life, he on Twitter asked you, I noticed, or asked No Quarter Show, which really just goes to you, and I'm happy to, you were writing back to, you were, Mike was sending responses to people this week in email. He was like, doing all that work, I sat back and watched it. It's awesome. I love having a co-host who actually puts effort in. <laughs> well, we were so far behind on answering some of those emails, I kind of was starting to feel bad about it. So I, I know. And the fact that, see, Mike feels bad about those sort of things, and he does stuff about it, whereas I'm like crazy lazy, so it's it's. Awesome. Carrington has no conscience at all, so. <laughs> None. So he wrote, is your podcast sending a representative to PAX East 2014? And then said, hey, the three-day passes were sold out. I was like, they can't be. Because I was going to snarkily say, yes, we are. And it's going to be me because I'm going to totally go. And then I thought, you know what? It sold out really early last year. I should go buy a pass now. It's sold out already. There's only Sunday passes available. It doesn't take place till next April. Yeah, the three-day passes sold out almost immediately. But the Saturday and Friday passes are also individually sold out. They had a, an alternate link that you could use, and it put you in this queue that refreshed automatically. And as soon as the server, the spot opened up, it would send you over to the ordering page. And that worked well. I mean, it was great. But by the time it moved me over, they were completely out of three-day passes. They still had all three one-day passes, but those didn't last much more than a couple of hours after that. So it went But, it went but you, you, didn't, you didn't buy passes? No, I just wanted to see how it was going. And <laughs> you suck. Thing. You should have bought me passes because it would have been such a nice gift for I me. I was just taking up spaces in the queue to annoy people <laughs> like you, Carrington. Yeah, the thing is, I didn't even know this happened. It came, it went. I didn't even notice. And it's too bad because I really want to go. So maybe for the next year. Maybe I'll go in 2015. So Cinecaster wrote and he said that you're right. What am I right about, Carrington? Tell me, tell I me, tell me. don't want to talk about it. Oh, no, you're <laughs> telling me. Come on. Okay, so it's about Ghosts and Goblins. He says how this game came to be known as somewhat of a classic is completely freaking a mystery to me. Mm. I thought it sucked when I was nine, and I think it sucks now. <laughs> then he says, all tongue-in-cheek levity aside, I think Mike's complaint about poor game design are spot on. The mechanic, of be <laughs> yeah, the mechanic of being sent back to a long-past checkpoint whenever you lose a life might work in some home console game, but in my opinion, it's horribly off-putting 
frustrating and completely inappropriate for a coin-operated game. A paying customer should not be forced to slog through the exact same nigh-on impossible traps multiple times on a single credit. R-Type does this as well, which is a shame, because that game's actually pretty awesome otherwise. Cinecaster, I'm your new best friend. (laughs) And that seems to be a common complaint. I still like the game, but it does seem to be a common complaint that they're very long levels, they're very difficult, it's really easy to make a small mistake and die, and there's essentially one save point at the halfway part. So that's it. You're either back right to the beginning or way back to roughly the halfway point. There's no other options. So You know, I was thinking about that this week, and I, I wonder if part of the appeal for, for the people who really do love this game is being able to take pride in being good at a really, really hard game. Even if the game is kind of, you know, eh, whatever, it's hard, and that's the challenge is the draw. For me, it's funny because sometimes you're in your underwear, and that goes a long way with me. <laughs> yeah, but this week's game has much better humor than that. This week's game is freaking hilarious at but points. But first, not everyone agrees with Cinecaster, and so Dr. Quest has gone as far as to threaten to quit the show. That'll show you. He tweeted, uh, I'm not sure I will keep listening. If Mike does not like a game, fine. Stop blaming the programmers for your low score. Well, I am going to keep liking Ghosts and Goblins. You can't make me not like it. You are a sick, sick man, sir. It's an underwear game. I dig it. (sighs) Whatever. (laughs) This week's game is not an underwear game. This week's game, if you get touched, you don't take off your suit because you would die if you did in this game. You instead just fry and you see your bones. This week's game is... The Adventures of Major Havoc. Major Havoc, indeed. It is... Awesome. From 1983, I think. Late 1983, though. It's a vector game, and I do love me some vector games. Crazy amounts of variety. Really difficult game. Really funny. I I love everything about this game. I had a great time playing it this week. This has quickly become one of my favorite games, I think. You control the eponymous Major Havoc. Oh, and I love this. The Catastrophiter. (laughs) Against numerous robot ships who defend (laughs) enemy reactors. The ships are encased in a sort of force field, so basically you have to shoot each ship twice. And once you clear the screen of these incoming ships, you move to the reactor phase. And that is a platform jumper sort of a game where you make your way down through this maze and various obstacles are shooting at you and trying to electrocute you and kill you. And you have to set off the reactor. And once you get there and do that, then you have a time limit to get yourself back to the surface, into your ship and away and off to the next one. And Further into the game, then, after they they work in maze levels, so after you clear the ships that are flying down the screen at you, you begin to make your way up this maze, and the maze scrolls towards you, and you move back and forth at the bottom of the screen and try to avoid the barriers and get to the next area. It's crazy awesome. And what I like is there's a lot of variety in this game and most of the individual sections of the game, like that beginning part where you're basically doing like a Galaxian thing and the part where you're running through the space maze trying to get to the the reactor, like so many of these things would in other games be the whole game and they'd be a pretty decent game. But here you're getting like all of it and it's all well done and it's got lots of humor. Like there's this moment where if you pause for too long, Major Havoc will like stand across his arms and tap his foot. (laughs) Just like, And when you get zapped and you see the bones and just so many little details with lots of humor. And I think the graphics are, I mean, I'm a fan of vector games anyway. I love the look of a vector game. And this has great use of color, great use of the animations, like really smooth and lots of variety and lots of things going on. It's, It's like a virtuoso vector game. I loved it. I like the the physics, the the use of the physics where 
you have to sort of control your momentum. So as you're making your way down through the reactor levels, you use your but the same button that serves as the fire button in the ship is your jump button. And the longer you hold your button down, the higher Major Havoc jumps. It took me a while to figure that out because I kept hitting the jump button and he would go up a little bit and come back down. Because it's not really jump. It's sort of like you're using a, like a, a jetpack jet or something. And, right. and it feels like that. And so you jump and you fall slowly down. It's a, it's a space game, right? But so oh, it's so good. If you bounce off a wall or something, your jump is over and you fall down to the nearest flat surface. Usually there's something waiting at the bottom of wherever you're falling down to kill you. But if you do it right, you can actually hit the jump button from your reactor and just ride that all the way up to the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can still steer while you're, while you're shooting upward. I did find it was a little sensitive on the walls. Like I touched something and it would you sort of sit down and get stunned for a long time and it's very stressful. So I found that was a little bit sensitive for, for my liking, uh, mostly because I wasn't good enough to avoid it. But yeah, I really had to mess with the sensitivity settings. I have the, the X-Arcade trackball and I also have the spinner built into my regular X-Arcade. And I tried both of those with varying results, and, and you can really make a big difference by messing around with the sensitivity on that. I ended up preferring it with Spinner. I tried Trackball 2 and also Spinner, and everybody seems to like the Trackball better. We'll talk later about the cabinet and the special control it used, totally different. And I also did it on keyboard, so you can kind of play it with anything. But I found for me, the Spinner, and with the sensitivity adjusted so it wasn't so bonkers, was totally the way to go. I like that there's the whole vaccine empire, the whole vax. There's lots of computer puns in this, which is great. I love the fact that you're clones because like in an arcade game, of course it is, you get multiple lives and they're all essentially the same. You don't get like in a game, it won't be like you get three lives and they have different characteristics. It's, it is essentially a clone. And this is the first game that's called that out. I've never noticed that before. Uh, the game was designed by Owen Rubin, who was a prolific game designer. Who is my new game designing hero, by the way. <laughs> this game is amazing, and other games he worked on were amazing. I think you should insult him, so he comes on the show, and we can interview him, because I will just bow down. This guy is fantastic. I was just about to do that, but I don't think I can. If you go to his website, he is still active in the game community, and it looks like he has a section called Games and Stories, where he talks about the, the design and development of each one of the games that he was involved in in depth, and there's some really neat stuff there. And he's worked on some pretty famous titles. He did Battlezone. He did Battlezone. He did Major Havoc. He did Space Duel. He did Gravatar, one of my all-time favorites, the game that's sitting behind me right now. Come on, this guy is amazing. I mean, this guy sucks. He's terrible. He's awful. He should come on our show and defend himself. (laughs) (laughs) Oruben.com. It's the world of Owen Rubin. And I found, holy cow, the... If we were a show of higher production quality and that actually put effort in, <laughs> we would have a lot to say about this because there's a lot of stuff on the web. It's got a, this game itself has a really interesting backstory. It went through multiple uh, variants as they came up with the design. Like I guess the there was a prototype called Alpha or Alpha One, I think, and that was like the second version of it. And there's it's a board floating around about that. That's and so the whole story, backstory of the board, the difference between like they were planning to put speech in, but it didn't make it. And so you can sort of tell from the various prototype boards the things that were going to happen and shrinking down to two chips from three. And and Owen himself did a great article for SIGGRAPH about vector games and it's called um my life in vector or something like that so i'll have a link to the show notes that i read that article and it's great and he gives this great uh, sort of like a history of vector game things and i love them right so i'm just eating this stuff up this week i spent 
a lot of the time playing this game and a lot of time reading about this game that just is such an interesting cabinet. It's got such an interesting backstory. It's got such an interesting story inside the game about this whole clone scientist thing. And, and this Owen Rubin fellow who didn't make this game alone. There's, it seems like at Atari, everyone would chip in and do things. And Mark Cerny seems to be the other fellow who did quite a bit. He did the, the last levels. And there, in fact, on Owen's website, he talks about this game and bringing Mark in and about how Mark has a seriously large ego, (laughs) but backs it up with seriously great design skills. So on Mark's website, he writes like really honestly and really openly and still with enthusiasm and love about these old games. And it's so much fun to read about it. This, this was a great week of reading and gameplay. If you go to the mailbag section, he answers a bunch of questions from readers about his games And he was talking about Major Havoc and said, Major Havoc started out as a game called Tholian Web, named after an old Star Trek episode where the ship was caught by other ships that locked the ship into a web. You can still see part of that original game in the third space wave, actually. Sure, yeah, when they're going across and making that little maze thing you then fly through. Yeah, I can can totally see that. And then he talks about how game ideas were processed at Atari at the time. Very interesting stuff. As far as the sound for the game, I needed a splat sound. I tried a lot of things that just didn't work. One morning I was in the shower and I dropped the washcloth and I thought paper towels would work great. Speaking of the sound, when I was playing this game, the one thing that really jumped out for me, I like everything about this game. I like the sound, I like the graphics. There's nothing about this game I don't like. But I kept hearing what sounds like Tron sounds. Did you hear that too or is that just me? Because when you when you like finish a level, like you, you get to the reactor and you get out of the maze... It makes this like, da, 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 here we go to the next level sound. And I swear it's a Tron sample or Tron sampled it. It's like the same note in the same tone. It's right out of the Tron game and right out of the Tron movie. And I don't know which came first or it could be just a coincidence. If it's just like the same chord made on the same chip, it probably just sounds the same. But I kept thinking, and now we go into Tron. I I think you're delirious and hallucinating. These are totally separate issues. The fact that I'm delirious and hallucinating doesn't mean it's not also Tron, that Tron didn't rip this game off. Uh, there are many different versions of the Major Havoc ROMs that you can download on the web. There's version 2, which I guess is the side-to-side spinner thing that you'll talk about with the cabinets. Version 3 was the trackball ROM, and... Yeah, that seems to be out there, and somebody did another version of it, like, uh, made changes. It's called Major Havoc Return to Vax. Oh. I found the actual ROM, and I found lots of websites talking about it, including websites talking about it in the first person on gamearchive.com, but that's been taken down, so you can only find that through archive.org, but it's still on archive.org, but I can't find the name of the fellow who did this. And lots of places link to this ROM, so the ROM is readily available. And this guy, whoever did it, says, well, I've been doing some hacking on this game for about eight years. It's a slow-going project, but I have four new levels. I made the game a bit easier, added speech support, and done a lot of little things. You can download the ROM from my hacks so far. That's called Major Havoc Return to Vax. And Owen actually links to that site as well, saying, hey, here's a cool version of a guy who's going through the code bit by bit and trying to find a way to add this. So Owen's great. He actually links over to MAME and ROM things too. (laughs) So well done him. Yeah. So I've downloaded that version, but haven't played it. But I'm interested in checking out the difference. I'm very excited about this game. There was an Easter egg 
Actually, I don't think this was an Easter egg. It's a bug, at least according to what I'm reading here. It says that you can slip through the bottom corner of levels 1, 5, 9, 13, 17, etc. You fall down through space and you see a special surprise. This was only oh. successfully done by one person repeatedly, but Owen could never get the problem fixed. I wonder what the special surprise is. I didn't see that. I don't know. I'm not that good. I'm not that well, or that bad to well, fall through. That's possible too, yes. I am neither that good nor that bad. I can't find anything to not like about the game. Yeah. Now, it's hard. I'll admit, like, I can't get past what I think of as the third level yet, but it makes me want to play it more to get farther. And it's, I think, one of the best examples of vector graphics of any of the games I've played. There's so much going on, but it's well animated. It's not just moving blocks of stick figures. They they have a real personality. The way the way Major Havoc runs and falls, it, it's a well-done character. I couldn't get my head around the point scoring. There's so many different ways to get points. My scores were kind of all over the place, and that, that's not really a criticism of the game. There's just lots going on, because you've got the space enemies that you can shoot at, and they seem to give anywhere from, like, 100 to 1,000 points or something each, and I never... And then there's the enemies inside the maze where you're walking around, and they seem to be basically 1,000 points for killing one of them if you do it with your shield and stuff, and... If you watch the track screen, it flips through a couple of screens, and then it starts going through the different point systems... I thought it was funny that all of your enemies are different types of oids. I can't find a webpage right here in front of me that lists them all. But I thought that was funny. The, the thing is, they're all listed, I, th- I believe, as multiples of 100. But my scores kept ending in, they would end in a 4 or a 3. Well, because of the breakout game. We haven't even talked about the breakout game. <laughs> oh, we need to talk about the breakout game. Please, Garrison, tell me all about the breakout game. <laughs> There's a breakout game. <laughs> Like, you would think, with everything we've talked about, that there's like a whole a Galaxian or Galaga-type flying game, there's a maze space game, there's this, the you know, reactor. With all of that would be enough variety, but oh no, there's also a breakout game. So in the bottom right corner, there's this little mini breakout panel, and I guess you can warp with it. So first of all, like, to start the level, there's not really a, a start button. Like, the player one button is also the fire slash shield button. So you press that to start. And when you're beginning a level, when you press that, it launches the ball for breakout. So then you move back and forth and you're playing this little mini game for breakout. And also, the position of your paddle will dial in numbers and there's warps like for instance it'll tell you that the red warp is number 23 so if you position it so it's got a two and then you hit fire and then a three you'll warp to level four and you get a big bonus i i never was able to actually get that warp working so i only know this because i read about it and then there's a bunch of different warp codes in different colors Mm. the green code is 824 but you can't do the green code first you have to be wait wait to be told in order like if you've done the one warp i guess then the next it'll tell you okay after doing the red warp correctly the next will be the yellow warp and here's your number for that i couldn't get it to work because i would keep dropping the ball in the stupid (laughs) the stupid uh, breakout game but i love the fact that each level starts with let's play a little game of breakout and okay now let's move on to the game so it's like this little little pause with a mini game and I, i love that that's there like it's just so so cool like you, I was not able to figure out the warping mechanism. I was too engrossed in uh, playing Breakout. I mean, I, I, I kind of figured out what it wanted me to do. I just wasn't able to actually execute right. it. <laughs> so it just wasn't, wasn't good enough. But man, I would just play the heck out of this game. This is, this, is, this is so good. It's a cabinet I would want to have. Let's jump right to that. I want to have this cabinet very, very badly. I want this game. Before we get to the cabinet, let's talk about the innards really quickly. It has two CPUs. They're both Motorola 6502s. Ooh, my favorite chip. 
Of course. The first one is at 2.5 megahertz. The second one is at 1.25 megahertz. It has four Pokey Sound chips, each at 1.25 megahertz. It is a alternating two players, and it has a weird sort of dial control. And in fact, Carrington, why don't you tell us all about that? Okay, first of all, the cabinet is cool. It's got this cool shape. It's very different from other cabinets, so I immediately liked it. Every week, I look at these cabinets, and for the most part, it's like, oh, it's the same cabinet again, but just different color. But this is totally different. It's got this shape where it's kind of skinny on the bottom. It's almost like a pedestal holding up the bigger part on the top, which is the monitor. And there's neat side art, and it's, you know, it's okay, but there's not a lot of room in the front for art because of the skinniness of, of the bottom. It's got the typical marquee graphic with the major Havoc logo. But the main thing is the control panel. So the control panel is really cool and it's kind of deep. It has room on the top of it to have this red and blue maze graphic, which doesn't really do anything, but it kind of looks neat. And, you know, that's good enough for me. And then it's got two buttons and the special controller. The two buttons are different colors. There's a red button and a yellow button. So the red button is fire slash jump. It's not really jump. It's fire slash retro rockets. And that also counts as the one player start button. And then the yellow button is your shield button that I would constantly forget that I have this one time use shield. That's also the two player start button. But the big thing is this really vibrant green yellow roller thing what's green yellow chartreuse so it's got a chartreuse roller <laughs> i think it's chartreuse i haven't seen one of these in person i've only seen photos and so imagine instead of a trackball imagine i will paint you a word picture so it's not a trackball and it's not a spinner it's a roller so kind of like a stubby paint roller vertically aligned so imagine you have a roller and the stick in the roller is facing away from you so you can roll left and right so instead of being a trackball because you can't really move anywhere. You're just guiding yourself left and right. That's all you do in this game. It's got a dedicated controller just for that, which no doubt made it a very expensive one-time thing. It's unfortunate that this game seems to have been a disastrous failure. <laughs> if I'm wrong, oh, and please come on our website and tell, come on our podcast and tell us about it. So only 300 of these were made. So they're crazily collectible. The vast majority of these were actually kits instead. So after the original came out and was expensive, it was a little over $2,000, I think, wasn't selling well. I think mostly because at the time, by the time this came out, because this came out November or December, I think, of 1983. And by this time, Vector Games had a bad rep with arcade operators. Vector Games were finicky and they failed a lot and they were just kind of being seen as too much trouble for what they're worth. They're they're expensive and their monitors are always dying. And then you come out with this game and say, okay, it's $2,000. It's got a weird controller. It's a vector game and it just didn't sell. So I guess Atari or somebody, I think maybe had mentioned that maybe we should do this as a, a raster game instead. And it probably would have, would have sold better, I guess, a raster, but it would be a totally different game. Like this has that feel. There's a certain feel to a vector game. That's not just because it's done in lines. There's a way that you play them. That's different. And I think the game design is indicative of that. And, and it's the thinking of designers like, like Owen doing that, not just the fact that it's a vector game, therefore gives it that feel. I think that's how it goes. So anyway, this seems to have been a disastrous flop in, in at least the original cabinet, but sold better as a conversion kit. So you could convert something like a Tempest game. So you pick some other vector game. So Tempest works well because it's got the XY monitor and it's got a spinner. So that's why there's the other ROM and say, hey, take a Tempest, which is already a great game. You could convert it over to, to Major Havoc. So usually if you find these out in the wild, they're conversion kits because there's only those original 300 or so dedicated machines. Hard to come by. I couldn't find any 
anybody ever selling one. People occasionally sell bits of them or boards and stuff. So I have no idea what it would cost to get one. But man, I really, really want one. Yeah, there's something very charming about doing this as a vector game and appealing that, that like you said, I don't think it, doing it as a, as, as a raster game would have saved it. No. And also coming out late 83, there's lots of crashing and stuff going on anyway. So, I mean, how, how well was it going to sell regardless? But I, I think as a game, it's a tremendous success. It is just one of the best games we have played and talked about. Yeah, I'll be playing this game for quite some time. And it's funny. Catastrophighter. Come on, Catastrophighter. Mm, can't beat that. <laughs> All right, Carrington, it's time to fess up. I confess down because I did very poorly. My version of it, I don't know what ROM version I was working on, whether there's easy, either hard or whatever, but I do know that the default high score in the version I was playing is 94,532. And my score is lower than that. It's another game where I can't even reach the default high score at all. So the best I did, I got to position two. And that was a screenshot I posted on Twitter. So 90,311. So me too, uh, having a, a score ending in a one. 90311 is the best that I could do. And it actually happened midweek. And I've played a lot since then. I just haven't been able to get past. I'm dying in the same place every time. Yes. In fact, you were late to our recording session because you were frantically trying to beat my high score. <laughs> That's usually the case. Yes. And what is this high score of yours? Well, I feel pretty good that this week I was able to beat you. Yes. I got 104,316. You disappoint me. How did I disappoint you by beating you? <laughs> well, that is disappointing <laughs> for me. You know what? Something we didn't mention about this game. I'm just going to keep coming back to it, like how often this game is. This game does something that very few games do. Holy cow, the, it's the little touches in the game design. At the beginning of this episode, we were complaining. Well, everyone else was complaining. I was still liking it. The fact that when you're playing Ghosts and Goblins, you die and you go way back and you have to do the same thing over again and you'll probably just keep, keep getting killed by the same, the same deal. Because this game has so much variety that when you die and you go back to the beginning of whatever task you're working on, like say you're in the reactor maze thingy and you die, so you have to go back into the maze because you haven't made it to the reactor yet couple of things happen that I really like. The first is the thing that killed you is gone now. So if, if you die by running into like one of those little bright white sprite monster thingies that touches you, that one's removed from the game. So whatever was the thing that you were stumbling on, that's not there anymore. And I think that is a great little point. I also like that if you make your way all the way to the reactor and you touch it and that starts off the timer, okay, you got to get back out of this maze. If you don't make it, as is often the case for Carrington, then it still counts as you finish that because you did get to the reactor and the reactor blew up. So the reactor kills you and you lose a man, but then you start past that and you're now on to the next level. So you're, you don't have to go back in and make it out. So if you can't make it out of the maze, but you still get to the reactor that counts because that was the task. That's a brilliant and very fair bit of game design there. I do like the realistic approach. You have a shield that you can use when you're running around in the reactor, but you get basically you get to use it once and it, it only lasts for a couple of seconds. But it will get you past like one bad thing. But it doesn't just keep recharging and you can use it over and over to get through everything. No, I wish because holy cow, that would make this maze a lot easier. Hold it down and go. But I, I can see how they had to add that in because when you get to the reactor and you touch it and now you're having to race back out of the maze, a lot of the things that were previously moving have stopped moving. It's sort of like the maze freezes and you have to race out because you've shut it down. You're going down hallways and lots of times there's things that are going up and down in the hallway and you sort of pause and time it and get past it. When you stop the reactor and you stop everything moving, it might have stopped 
right in the middle of a hallway and you literally can't get past it now because it's not moving and there's no metal waiting. So you would need the shield to get past that. So again, it's very fair to give you that shield because otherwise you can get yourself in an impossible situation without it. Although there is, of course, a little mini map and then there's multiple ways to go through these mazes. So if you're a better player than me, you'd be able to look at the mini map and go, oh, darn, there's a frozen thing in that hallway. I better take a different hall- hallway. I wasn't really looking ahead that much. I was frantically trying to get out because the reactor's ticking down. I like the fact that the game has that countdown mechanic built into it, but it's not just a counter in the corner that counts down your bonus. What you start with is a, a level of oxygen, and that level starts dropping. And as you're running through the maze, you pick you can pick up more oxygen packs, which extends that, that time further. And then once you hit the reactor, then the countdown goes. So you still have this running clock that you have to beat, but it's not just some random number up in the corner that says you have to get past three screens in this amount of time. I, I really, really like the way that they did that. Yeah, very fitting and appropriate use of a timer. And so, yeah, no no complaints there. In fact, no complaints at all. I try to think about, well, what were the things I would say I don't like about this game so that I'm not just a gushing fanboy, but I'm just a gushing fanboy. This game is so good. And you can see how, like, both the guys that worked on this game did Gravatar, a game that I fell in love with enough to buy the cabinet. I have a Gravatar cabinet behind me. I love the love vector games, and I particularly love Gravatar, which was crazy difficult in this game. Boy, this is a designer who likes hard games. <laughs> like, Owen Rubin likes a difficult game. But these guys worked on Gravatar, which I adored. This has, like, all the graphical fun of Gravatar, plus more humor, the amazingly fluid graphic designs that um, Owen Rubin brings to designing. I think he has a real... You can sort of tell that his games have that, he's got a sense of style to them, and I really dig it. Now, I had never, I don't know about you, we haven't talked about it, I've never played this game before. Like, this week was the first time I've ever played this game. Well, it was never ported to any of the gaming consoles or home computer systems of the of the day, and in fact, it only uh, recently began showing up again in compilations such as the Atari Anthology and Microsoft's Game Room for the Xbox 360 and games for Windows Live. So if you didn't play it in the arcade back then, you probably wouldn't have seen it. I played it a few times at one or two of the arcades that I went to. They didn't have the side-to-side spinner, they had the trackball and I, I remember going, gee, this is really hard and not, not spending too much time on it. And now I look back and kind of wish that I had because I love this game. But uh, like you said, there were only the 300 of the original cabinets and it was difficult and it wasn't ported to home stuff. So it makes sense that we wouldn't have played it. Yeah. And I don't know that I've ever even seen it in the wild. So I don't think I was even exposed to it as a kid. I, don't, I, I guess with only 300 of the original cabinets being made, maybe I just never noticed it, but I don't remember ever coming across this game ever. Maybe it didn't didn't come to Canada or something. I don't know. So, But I'm delighted that this week I got a chance to play it and be introduced to it because I am absolutely in love with this game. I certainly don't remember seeing the original cabinet, but I I have seen a couple of examples of the the conversion kits. And while I may have beaten you this week, neither one of us got anywhere near the world record uh, that was set by Ettore, E-T-T-O-R-E, Jaffe of New York, New York, who scored 1,940,078 points on June 20th, 1985 at the world-famous Broadway Arcade during the 1985 Video Game Masters Tournament. So we talk about this in some shows. We don't talk about it in some other shows. But if you were assembling an arcade, and now you have more to choose from because we've done a whole bunch of shows. So you got to think back to all the great games you've played and the games you loved. But if you were only allowed to have just a tiny handful, you're making a little tiny arcade of five or ten games. Would this make the, the cut? This would absolutely make the cut. And in fact, it would replace three or four other games. 
is it that large? <laughs> am I if I'm misunderstanding the size of this cabinet? No, I would just buy three or four of them. <laughs> so you're going to buy up all all the existing ones because I suspect there's not many of these left. I, I have no idea what they what they sell for, but I bet you it's a very pretty penny. So that that was this week's game. Unabashed enthusiasm from both of us, and even happy that I was able to beat you, Karen. That's the worst part of this show. But hopefully that will get edited out. No, you like that. You like that. Oh wait, I think I have a new score. Actually, no, the last few days, all I've gotten are really bad scores. <laughs> this game ramps up nicely, though. I find I can, can knock out that first level no problem. And it's fair. Like, a lot of games we've been playing recently, like, the first level can kill you. And this game is, like, first level's kind of hard at first, but once you've done it once, you're like, oh, I get it. It's a cakewalk. Second level, where I can start to die, and then the third reactor is like, you're not getting out of here alive. <laughs> it was a very balanced approach to, to game design. I enjoyed it a lot. Obviously, you did too. And let's see if we enjoy next week's game, Garrington. Is it going to be this one again? It is, yeah. We're just going to keep playing this over and over. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So if it, for some reason, wasn't the same game again, would it sound like anything? Well, it might sound like this. Well, I think it sounds interesting. I'm just going to make a witty comment here, but instead I think I'll just wrap it up and say thank you for playing uh, along with me, Carrington, and podcasting. Absolutely. Fun as always. Have a good week, everybody. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent to no quarter at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this show has been released to the public domain. Yeah.